Hi. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Uh, my name is Jamie. I'm a college student here in Michigan. And this is my very first podcast. Um, so for my very first podcast episode, I have a guest. You will have, um, her name is Julia Yesbik. She is a college professor at Oakland University and one of my favorite people on the planet. So the fact that she was willing to be at my very first podcast means so much to me. So thank you, Professor Yesbik. I appreciate it so, so, so much. Thank you. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Michigan. Um, I, most of my childhood days were in Ypsilanti, Michigan, right next to Ann Arbor. And I went to high school in Ann Arbor uh, to a small private Catholic school. And then went to undergraduate. Uh, uh, my undergraduate degree was from uh, Michigan State in like East Lansing. So I'm a Michigan girl. Okay. So one thing that I read about when I was, you know, doing my research is you learned and studied in the UK. Mm-hmm. So how were the, how was it learning and being, going to school in the UK and were they different than the uni- like universities in the US? Um, yes, certainly. They, um, for one thing, whenever the professor felt like uh, he didn't get to everything he wanted to say in that class period, he would just continue the discussion at the pub near, nearby. So we would all just go down to the pub and he would buy the first round of drinks for everybody. That's cool. This was graduate school, mind you. So yeah. everyone was of one age, although I think there's a little bit different sort of culture in the UK and how they view drinking. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was very, it was, it was different. They kind of, they write differently, a little bit differently, I think, than we do in the US too. They have slightly different sort of um, uh, parameters and conventions for academic writing and um, yeah it was it was very good though I made a lot of really great friends in that program that I still am in touch with even you know 20 years later so yeah yeah um, and then what was it like just living in the UK in general um, it was pretty rainy and cloudy <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was fun I was in Manchester so Manchester actually has some real affinities to Detroit so it felt a little bit familiar in that sense there's you know a kind of similar industrial history and there's a musical history and it has that kind of um you know for lack of a better word grit that I uh, you know I was at least somewhat accustomed to so yeah I I really enjoyed it aside from the weather so I heard you have a bachelor's two masters and a PhD what made you go and get a PhD after two master's degrees uh, well, the second master's degree I got along the way to getting the PhD. So I had a master's from the University of Manchester in the UK, and then I went and actually taught for about three years uh, after that at Virginia Commonwealth University before starting the PhD program at Harvard. So I started the PhD, and basically, it, PhDs in anthropology generally take about eight years. So wow. it's it's a long haul. And somewhere around like the second or third year, you can basically apply to like get the master's degree from the credits that you've acquired so far. So it's like two degrees in one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the next section I want to go to is you're mainly an anthropologist. And I personally do not know what the heck anthropology is. I know the store, <laughs> but I don't know exactly what it is. So what the heck is anthropology? Oh, 
All right. Well, you really put me on the spot here, Jamie. <laughs> okay. Anthropology is, well, there's, um, in the, well, here's an interesting distinction, actually. You just asked me about what the difference is between going to school in the, in the U.S. or the U.K. Well, the U.K. has a slightly different approach to anthropology than the U.S. British anthropology is founded on a slightly different history. Um, they kind of also uh, schematize it differently. In the U.S., we practice what's called a four-field approach. So we combine cultural anthropology, linguistics, forensics, and bio, uh, biological anthropology into one sort of um, under the all under the umbrella of anthropology. Now, I did not um, get my PhD in all four of those. I got my PhD in cultural anthropology. So that's one of the four subfields if you're um, doing your studies in the U.S. So I didn't actually answer your question, though. So, yeah. <laughs> so cultural anthropology is um, the study of living peoples and uh, basically it's it's a study of how they live of what is important to them of what um, you know how they work how they get by how they survive how they make their meals a lot of things that we would kind of conventionally call culture so it's a study of present living culture as opposed to dead people which are uh, archaeologists so it's like do. the living is there something specific that you do in the field of anthropology if so what me specifically, yeah. I mean, if there's one thing that PhDs are good for, it's making you narrow and narrow and narrow your focus. <laughs> yeah. um, so within cultural anthropology, I'm an urban anthropologist. I did my research in Detroit. Uh, I was specifically looking at the role of creative labor in um, efforts to revitalize the city. Um, and also even more specifically looking at single family homes as structures that were a kind of contested site between artists who were using single family homes to kind of um, as an as a canvas really as an art object and the city in terms of uh, how they were managing a lot of particularly vacant or decrepit single family homes. And what made you decide to go and pursue a career in anthropology? Um, I took a class in undergrad. Uh, I notoriously switched my major many many times in undergrad I started I think in English and then I went to art and then I found anthropology I think my sophomore or junior year by just taking an intro class and was really interested in it and so started taking a bunch of anthropology classes and then really missed the art <laughs> um, and then I discovered that there was this thing called visual anthropology which I had never heard of and one professor really kind of encouraged me to check that out some more and that's when I got into filmmaking, but um, I, yeah, I, I ended up with a degree in interdisciplinary humanities, which I tend to refer to as like a sample platter degree, because it was sort of just like a little bit of everything. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so moving on to filmmaking, which I know is something you're very passionate about, how long have you been a filmmaker? Professionally, that's hard to say. Um, what makes someone professional? Uh, I mean, like, I didn't get a film into a really major film festival until 2015. Oh, wow. But I started making films in, let's see, when would that have been? 2000, about 2000, probably. But that was, you know, I was kind of self-taught. I had an uh, anthropology professor in undergrad who encouraged me to just start shooting on my own and um, doing kind of, like, nonfiction projects that of anthropological interest. And I started doing that. And then I did the master's in visual anthropology uh, after undergrad. So, you know, I mean, I made student films through, through my yeah. master's program and then kind of continued from there. And how does your filmmaking career differ from your anthropology career? Um, incredibly. Uh, they're very different. Um, well, I mean, really this gets down to what 
legitimates you within a particular discipline. In anthropology, generally speaking, publishing work in peer-reviewed journals is what kind of gets your name out, um, gets your research and your scholarship out there and establishes you as a scholar. Um, although there is a very, very, very long history of film and filmmaking within the discipline of anthropology. So there are um, outlets for anthropological film, although the films that I make don't generally do so well in those um, categories because uh-huh. the films that I make are generally considered a little more experimental or, uh, I mean, they're a nonfiction, but they're definitely, most people would kind of put them more on the experimental realm. So anthropology like ethnographic film festivals which are a thing don't generally go for my work sometimes they do but (laughs) and for those who don't know and I don't really understand what exactly is an experimental film that's a great question um and experimental films are films that uh it's actually really a bad name and I think everybody agrees even you know dyed in the wool experimental filmmakers probably don't think it's the perfect term I think we just use it for lack of any better term. Uh, and the work itself tends to formally experiment. So oftentimes that means that you're working and playing with um, what you can do with the camera or what you can do with different types of camera or different types of film stock. Or, um, But it also tends to um, maybe not follow the conventions of narrative and story that we're used to from Hollywood. All right, so moving on to Moonlight Micro Cinema. Mothlight. What exactly is it? <laughs> okay, well, a micro cinema is typically um, a very, very small cinema <laughs> that usually has very, very small audiences and tends to sort of appeal to niche audiences. So it's not showing, you know, mainstream films or aiming to even necessarily appeal to a mass audience, but rather screening films that you can't see in other places. Um, so Mothlight Microcinema started in 2012 in Detroit, and we initially were doing like monthly screenings just out of our loft. We had a loft downtown um, that worked really well for this, and people would come from Windsor, from Ann Arbor, from Columbus, Ohio even, to come up and see some of the films that we were showing. Um, and very quickly it was uh, apparent to me that there was a need for someone to show experimental film in this region because nobody else was doing it. Um, we have some amazing film festivals in the area. Have like a sort of outlet year-round screening experimental um, and sort of avant-garde film and animation. So, um, so that's what Mothlight does. Although we are very, um, we are nomadic. We don't have a brick and mortar, so we kind of work with different venues around the city and kind of do um, yeah, film do screenings. like little. Yeah. Okay, so I read on the website that you work with someone by the name of Ben Gatos. Who is Ben, and what is the impact he's made on your career? <laughs> yeah, you'll probably see his name a lot. Um, I am married to him. Oh! <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, we work together a lot. Um, yeah, we. Ben's a designer. He is the chair of the art department at U of M Flint, and he has been my life partner for almost 20 years now actually this summer it will be 20 years it's so moving on to sensate journal did i say that right Mm -hmm. all right what is it (laughs) um sensate our sort of tagline is um i think a journal for experiments and critical media practice um i started it as a graduate student at harvard in 2010 it is still running oh it's our 10 year anniversary this year um we publish media-based scholarship so as a graduate student i felt that there was not enough platforms for people who are doing time-based work to have the same kind of discourse that you have in peer-reviewed 
print journals. So, you know, given the capabilities that we have at our fingertips now with the internet, I was like, this should be a relatively easy thing to fix. <laughs> Little did I know it was not. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, real, it's a real labor of love. It's a lot of work. Um, but we publish all kinds of work, everything from sort of like uh, what could be called media archaeology to um, artistic research, anything where there's a sort of scholarly inquiry that's being done with and through a media. So we're going to move on to college professing. Hmm. How long have you been a college professor? Um, let's see. I started teaching after my first master's degree in 2005 at Virginia Commonwealth. Um, it was a pretty terrifying experience. I was 25 at the time, had never taught before in my life, and the very first class they gave me had 250 students in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I looked kind of young, so I think when I walked in the first day, oh, and I had dreadlocks, that didn't help. Ooh. So when I walked in the first day, the students were sort of like, that's the professor. <laughs> but it worked out all right. Um, it was a real learning experience, and uh, yeah, I taught there for three years. Uh, before starting the PhD, so I guess it's been whatever, like fifteen years. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> All right, what influenced you to add college professor to your resume? Mm. Well, unfortunately, uh, I think this is changing, but there's not a whole lot of career opportunities for people who want to be a documentary or experimental filmmaker and an anthropologist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the academic uh, route is one option. Um, to be honest, if you'd asked me this question about a year ago, I probably would have said. I'm done. I don't think I want to go on in academia. I don't think I want to teach. And then I was very, very lucky to get this opportunity here at Oakland University, which has been incredibly reaffirming and um, a real joy. And I've really kind of found uh, that I, I think I do love teaching after all. <laughs> and you so, met yours truly. Yes. <laughs> um, so what has been the best part of being here at Oakland? Um, well, I think I've been really impressed with the students. I find that the students have been um, very open and, uh, yeah, open by open, I mean open-minded and really ready to kind of like see some challenging film work, um, ready to talk about things that might be challenging as well, and, and respectful, which I have not always found to be the case at other places that I've taught. Um, so that's really nice. But also my colleagues here in the Cinema Studies Department have been, in the English Department, uh, I should say, Cinema Studies Program in the English Department, um, have been incredibly, incredibly welcoming. I really, I, I mean, I've taught at a lot of different universities now, a lot. And I can tell you that is not the case everywhere. A lot of times people don't even know who you are. And then months down the road, you're in the copy room and they're like, who are you? <laughs> um, so that was very, very nice and really has made a big difference in my experience here. Um, so besides film classes, what else have you taught? I've taught a lot of anthropology. Um, let's see. Um, when I was at Virginia Commonwealth, I taught a class way back then about Nepal because I had done some research in Nepal. Um, mm. I've taught mostly probably, mostly anthropology classes with, I would say maybe two thirds of my teaching experiences teaching anthropology and the other third is probably teaching film, although that's changing now, now that I'm in a cinema studies department yeah. program. Yeah. All right. Going on to the next little section, a section I've been looking forward to, the mom section. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, you know, I find your kids very entertaining. What's the best part about having kids? Oh, man. Um, 
you know, when they hug you and say, I love you, mama. <laughs> when they go to sleep. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they're a constant joy. They're exhausting, absolutely exhausting. Um, it's the hardest job I've ever had in my life. It's 24-7. I mean, even after doing a PhD at Harvard, I can tell you if I ever hear a graduate student tell me that they're tired, I'll say, you have no idea. <laughs> Wait, so did you already have a kid before you started your no. PhD? I, uh, I had, well, they slightly overlapped, very slightly. Um, my daughter was born in 2016 in January, and I finished writing my dissertation and then defended my dissertation in April of that year. So she was like three months old. Yeah, she walked across, I held her while I walked across the stage to get my diploma. Aww, (laughs) that's so cute. Yeah. And how do you, the heck do you find the balance to do all of this stuff and have the kids? (laughs) Well, it's a very, very um, fragile balance. (laughs) There are times, it just takes very, like the wind could blow the wrong way and suddenly it all falls apart. I mean, Kids are constantly getting sick, you know, and and then they can't go to school and you have to stay home and your whole schedule gets thrown off. I mean, or, you know, they get an ear infection and they're up all night crying and you don't sleep for an entire night. Oh, you told me about that. You know, I mean, there's constantly, you know, any sense of balance you have is fleeting and very fragile. (laughs) Um, And also I just, I prioritize a lot, um, which is nice. It's very flexible in that way over the years have learned, especially since having kids, that I can't do it all in the same way that I used to before kids. I really have to be, I have to be more choosy now with my time and how I spend it. And I have to be incredibly efficient with that time when I have it because I don't get a lot of time. So if I have 20 minutes, you better believe I'm working really hard in those 20 minutes uh, because I just don't get a lot of spare time. I also overlap projects a lot. So if I'm doing, especially if I'm doing something that's like a favor for someone or I'm collaborating with somebody on another project that's sort of their baby, I make sure that it also kind of like feeds my work in some way too. So I don't say yes to everything that comes my way because I can't. Okay. How does having kids help when it comes to being a professor? That's a great question. Um, I think it's it's made me, I think, a little bit more compassionate to be honest you know sometimes I don't mean this in a patronizing way but sometimes especially with freshmen like I see these students and I think this is somebody's kid you know just my kid is going to be here someday and that makes me feel like well how would I want my kid to be treated you know Um, I would want somebody to be patient I would want somebody to be respectful you know a professor to be patient and respectful of their ideas and you know um so that has definitely having a kid changes a lot of things about how you see the world and I kind of am cringing as I say that because before I had kids I always would be annoyed when people would say things like that (laughs) and I never thought um it would change me I think in much as much as it has but um you think about things differently I would say you know things affect you differently too things that are happening in the world because you understand now that this world is going to be inherited by someone that you made the decision to bring into the world you know like they'll have their own life for sure they'll make their own choices but you made the decision to you know um bring them into this world for better or worse you know whatever you know whatever it may mean for them yeah and uh one more little thing about your kids what is one thing Yaz has taught you and one thing marcel has taught you over time oh man these are hard questions, Jamie. <laughs> um, well, Yaz just turned four. Oh um, and she is really 
at a stage right now where she's learning to share and Aww. she's voraciously her mind is like she really wants to learn how to read and she's like you know I think hungry for some of that um but she also has taught me like well kids are kind of like you know they reflect things back to you so if you lose your temper they lose their temper (laughs) and so like she's taught me I think a lot about like um understanding my own emotions too because I see her struggle with that I I mean every kid does like we don't that's something we have to learn we Mm -hmm. don't just come out knowing how to like what to do what's an appropriate response when you're mad you know that's why kids throw stuff their toys across the room and they have to learn (laughs) oh that's not appropriate but like even in a more nuanced way like expressions of joy or expressions of frustration or whatever you know like just it's helped me kind of be a little bit more in touch with my own um emotions and feeling and understanding like how best to express them because I know that she's watching and learning me from me yeah um with Marcel he's very I think he's a very loving child and um I mean both of them I would say have just mostly taught me a lot of patience (laughs) yeah for (laughs) sure because you have to be very very patient and very gentle and very repetitive with young children like you just have to keep saying something over and over and over again um yeah but actually to that like in that sense too he's talking a lot more now and now he just repeats himself <laughs> as well he'll say something like five times in a row and i'll be like i got it i got like, what's it thanks <laughs> just whatever the phrase is he'll repeat it like five times and i'm like all right i got it thanks man <laughs> but yeah all right these last couple are actually just for just fun questions when you are not working when you're not doing your any school stuff for here stuff for filmmaking what do you like to do um when you get free time that's funny yeah I don't really have free time I um to um go for a jog I like to although I've just recently started running again (laughs) um walk the dog yeah yeah occasionally walk. I mean we like together my my partner and my kids and I like we like to go and get outside when we can like on the weekends we like to go for a walk and take a hike somewhere um whether it's out in the country more or even just the Palmer Park in Detroit or somewhere like their Belle Isle or somewhere nearby um just to be outside yeah I think that's what I like to do yeah and uh, what is a typical day in your life like from sunup to sundown like when you on a day where you would come to here for example what take me on a little journey oh, through that day Generally, like today, um, you know, I get up with the kids and get them dressed, and that's usually around 6.30 or 7. That's early. Um, sometimes, yeah, sleeps in a little more, but Marcel's up by <laughs> 7. And Jumping up and down in his crib. Probably. Yeah, and, you know, calling for me. And, um, and then I get them dressed and get myself ready, give them breakfast, drop them off at daycare. Um, then today I went to the the rec center and worked out oh, a little bit cool. before I came here which I just started doing yeah I mean so that's not typical although I'd like it to be more typical it's um, a free gym membership yeah exactly <laughs> it's great and let's see and then yeah I have office hours and then class and then my class gets out today at five so my partner has to pick up the kids because I wouldn't be able to get back in time to pick them up so by the time I get home we'll have dinner put the kids to bed probably have them in bed by nine hopefully lately they've been getting to bed late then I clean the kitchen, make their lunches, and then at like 10, 30-ish, usually 10, 10, 30, I have some time to do some work before I go to bed. 
And then, you know, I'm up several times out throughout the night, usually, with them, just whatever. He doesn't get up? Oh, yeah, he does. We take turns, but it's still a lot. It still breaks your sleep. All right, what is your guilty pleasure? Um, when I really get a chance to just unwind, I like to go get a massage. That's my, that's my, like, mm-hmm. like, and make a fire, we have a fireplace, like, to have, just sit by the fire in the evening and just sit there and stare at the fire, and just unwind, and, yeah, I really, like, I do try to have times when I'm just, when I don't have to be thinking about something, when I can just sort of be. And then, if you could go back in time and tell young Julia about what her future was going to be like, what would you tell her? Busy. <laughs> <laughs> Hectic, exhausting. No, but it's fun. I mean, I have no complaints. I have, I'm very fortunate. I have um, great kids and a great partner and a great job. And, you know, I really, I'm very fortunate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know what I would tell her. I think I would say, I mean, I, always, I knew I always wanted to have kids even when I was young. So, like, I, pr- I think my young self probably knew even that if, if everything worked out and I was fertile and everything, you know, like, yeah. that, like my life allowed for it, that I would want to have children. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think I probably thought at that time that I was gonna, I mean, like I, like I said, I changed my major a lot. When I was a freshman, I think I was an English major. Um, I don't know. I don't think I had any really big plans. You know, I feel like kids today have their whole lives planned out. Even when I got to graduate school, the second time of graduate school, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I changed my entire direction as a graduate student. Your children are so, I tell you all the time, your children are just so entertaining. (laughs) Do you babysit? (laughs) I do. All right, well, let's talk. (laughs) Once again, today we talked to Professor Julia Yesbik of Oakland University. Thank you so much to everybody listening to my very first podcast. And of course, special thanks to Professor Yesbik for joining. I can't wait to continue this journey and I hope you'll come along. Thank you so much again for listening to me this week and I will see you all next week.